everyone, and welcome back. This is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. And if by any chance you can support them and keep them coming, I urge you to go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. The link is in the description. So, coming back today with another podcast, I've been a bit sick for a while. I think I'm pretty much over it, but I might still sound slightly more nasal uh, than usual, or perhaps you won't be able to tell the difference. I have done a few lectures over the past several months about Islam, and I might still go back and do a sort of short concluding statement about uh, about Islam and Islamic history. But at this point right now, I want to go back to the sort of subjects I was talking about previously, namely how the Middle Ages ended and the modern world that we know today began and grew out of them. So I already did lectures about a couple of important key people in the transformation of the medieval West into modern Europe, namely Columbus and Martin Luther. Now I'm going to step back even a little further and talk about two enormous technological revolutions that really paved the way for the modern world or what we would see today as, as the early modern West. And those two are the printing revolution and the gunpowder revolution, or really the military revolution more broadly, of which gunpowder was the most important innovation. So print has been uh, a big, new, increasingly popular subject for academic scholarship uh, in recent years. It's a way to discuss everyday lived experience and how ideas and beliefs are embodied in the world. By comparison, military history has been really out of fashion, is a very unfashionable subject, especially for academics. Uh, but if we're going to talk about how power and politics changed through the medieval and early modern age, really push comes to shove, sometimes literally, uh, power often simply rests with whoever is able to beat everyone else on a battlefield, uh, who is able to effectively kill or knock down their opponents and with what weapons. So it is very important if we're going to talk about about the beginning of the modern world, we do have to talk about changes in weaponry and particularly gunpowder. So I'm going to talk about these two technological revolutions and uh, why they were significant and also in some respects why they can be misunderstood or misrepresented. So as for printing, why did printing matter? Well, you might remember when I talked about the Middle Ages, especially in my first lecture, I mentioned the idea, the common notion, that the Middle Ages were an ignorant age and that that was largely because of the power of the church and that the church somehow suppressed knowledge. Well, this uh, is not true. And in fact, by far the major limiting factor 
that made it difficult to reproduce and pass on knowledge in the medieval world was material. It was technological. It was the fact that information and knowledge and history had to be kept in written texts on materials that could break down over time, that were difficult and expensive to make, uh, and the labor in simply copying and writing texts was highly skilled and, high, and highly rare and difficult and expensive to produce. Okay, so although medievals had a large fund of information that they had inherited principally from the ancient Greco-Roman world, those texts could, they could break down, they could be destroyed in fires, as happened repeatedly in multiple fires at the Library of Alexandria, the biggest repository of ancient and classical knowledge. Uh, it, they could be destroyed in floods, in raids and warfare. They could simply be accidentally lost, uh, torn. And in order to preserve the information in them, one had to constantly copy and produce more versions of the same texts, which involved firstly uh, procuring parchment. Parchment was highly expensive. Uh, hundreds of animals had to be slaughtered just to produce the parchment for one large book, like a Bible. Uh, so it was in many cases, in many times and places, it was simply wasteful to bother producing parchment for copying books when you might need those animals for food or work. Also, the copying of the texts themselves required a highly literate, skilled person who could produce new text quickly, but without making too many mistakes, and who hopefully understood the language and the meaning of the texts that they were copying so that they would know if they made a mistake and they could do it correctly. And that was fairly scarce. By the late Middle Ages, not that many people really knew classical Latin, uh, fewer knew Greek, let alone uh, Hebrew, Syriac, or other ancient languages. So this was really a rarefied skill which societies had to pour enormous amounts of resources to develop and deploy in copying books and manuscripts. So not surprisingly, by the 14th century or so, a great deal of material had been lost. Uh, texts had been misplaced, they'd been erased and written over, they had been destroyed in fires and other disasters, and the stock of knowledge was dwindling. Two technological solutions that came along to make this process a little easier were one, paper, okay? The, the technology of paper making from wood pulp uh, was learned from China by way of the Middle East and medieval Spain and made its way into Europe. And this made it possible to produce more abundant, inexpensive writing materials to put texts on in the first place. And once paper was widely known, the real bottleneck was labor, right? More than ever, it was having the people with the knowledge, the skills, and the time to produce or copy texts. 
And so it's not surprising that in the 15th century, as this uh, growing European population, uh, a growing urban gentry, a growing uh, governmental class, which I'll talk about more later, uh, that wanted books, uh, that wanted to be able to read the classics or the Bible or philosophy, theology, or simply exchange geographic information, that there was a great interest in experimenting with ways to produce texts quicker and easier and get them to a market that might want them. So into this vacuum stepped the printing press. Now, we don't know exactly for sure when and where the printing press was invented. We know that printing had already been invented hundreds of years earlier in China, uh, there was a widespread practice of woodblock printing where skilled carvers would carve messages like perhaps imperial proclamations or laws into woodblocks, paint them with ink and lay paper over them in order to reproduce a text many times over uh, exactly. Uh, also in Korea, there had been some use of movable type printing. So uh, small individual blocks, each carved with a particular character that could be arranged and rearranged to produce new texts quickly. So all of that sort of printing technology already existed in Asia, and it probably made its way gradually westward through the Middle East, perhaps Constantinople, and eventually into Europe. And naturally, movable type was particularly appealing in Europe because most Europeans use a Latin alphabet or else a Cyrillic alphabet made up of a small number of characters. So if you have those uh, characters carved into movable blocks, you can make many different texts very quickly and easily. However, the, the final component that was developed in Europe that hadn't been seen before was the actual press mechanism. So the first printing presses were in central Germany, in and around the city of Mainz in central Germany, and they actually adapted the press mechanism from the wine press, where one would take grapes and uh, put them between two platforms and turn a certain lever on a large screw-type mechanism that would push the two platforms together and squeeze out your juice from from the grapes so by no later than the year 1453 printers in Mainz in Germany were using these presses and we again we don't know for sure who invented it but the earliest known reference in any written document to the existence of a printing press comes from Mainz in 1453 and it refers to a certain printer named Johann Gutenberg having a press in his possession. He was sued in court, and the records of the lawsuit refer to him having a printing press among his assets. Uh, so traditionally, for many years, people have referred to Gutenberg as the inventor of the printing press. We don't really know if that's true, but he's the early, earliest one we know who had one. So what's so great about the press? Well, you know, it builds on the existing printing technology from Asia, but the advantage of the press is that if you use pressure, you can uh, brush a very 
thick or roll a very thick viscous ink on top of your block and push the, the paper down onto it so that you get a very clear, distinct, uh, sharp, crisp image or character on your paper. And these early German printing presses could produce printed documents that looked clear and crisp enough almost as if they had been hand composed, right? You wouldn't get the you wouldn't get a lot of smears and bleeding and things like this. You got a nice clear document that actually could imitate a handwritten document. And that's what these early printers in Germany like Gutenberg wanted to do was to produce texts that could practically be passed off as handwritten in a scriptorium. And but they could run them off incredibly quickly. So whereas, say, producing a single Bible in a medieval scriptorium in a monastery might take several months, uh, Gutenberg was able to produce several a week. And he actually would, he would print uh, page by page in his printing runs, and he would produce a batch of several hundred of these Bibles in the same block of time of, say, about three or four months that it used to take to write out one. Okay, so it was an incredible acceleration of production. And, of course, as time went on, the technology was only further improved and uh, texts could be produced and multiplied even more quickly. They also would be more reliable. You know, all you had to do was check the accuracy of a single page and once you had uh, inspected it and were sure that it was correct, you could print off as many copies as you wanted and know that there would be no more mistakes. Uh, unlike in a medieval scriptorium where if you made a single mistake on a single page, you would have to either tear that out and begin that page over again, or sometimes, depending on the material, throw out the entire book and start all over again. So it was remarkably more efficient and reliable than writing by hand. So once this printing technology had been created in Mainz, imitators quickly sprung up, found out about what Gutenberg and his cohorts were doing, and the technology spread around central Germany. That was the original homeland of the printing press, central Germany. And as many printers began printing off widely desired books, books of history, the classics, and especially, of course, the Bible, uh, they found that after some time they would saturate their market. There would be less demand for more of these books. There were only so many literate people around. So they would move out to other markets. They'd move to other parts of Germany, Denmark, Holland, Flanders, and they would set up printing workshops in these other surrounding areas. And once they were there, they would take apprentices and assistants from among the local population. These people would then master the printing technology, and they would then also diffuse out. They would move away from those markets to other sort of virgin markets farther away. And hence, the technology wave by wave gradually spread outward through Europe uh, from central Germany. And it really became European-wide because it 
was easy to master it and reproduce it and use it in places where people used the Latin alphabet or other uh, phonetic alphabets. And you could use this quick, easy, efficient, movable type, right? So people, so these apprentices, once they were experienced enough to be masters, they would simply make or acquire their own typeset, go out to some other city, set up a printing press, and keep spreading this technology. It didn't spread as easily into other areas that used very different writing systems, like uh, the Arabic-speaking Middle East. Uh, it really caught on in Europe. Okay. An interesting example of this is uh, William Caxton, who should be, his name should be known to many Britons. Uh, he was the first printer to set up a printing press in England. He was the first person to produce printed works in English. So he set up a, he, he trained in Flanders, right, with German printers in Flanders. He then went to England and set up his own press at Westminster in 1476. And his first known printed book was a version of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, he then went on to print, you know, works of, of course, philosophy, history, uh, poetry, and also uh, laws and proclamations issued from Westminster. So what was the effect of, of printing? Well, you know, the vast majority of these printers were happy to produce and sell copies of already familiar works, right? I've already mentioned Gutenberg's Bible, Caxton's Canterbury Tales. These were pieces of literature that their markets already knew, but that might have been prohibitive for many people to actually obtain for themselves, okay? Written books were extremely expensive, again, because of both the materials and especially the labor. So printing made familiar literature much cheaper and easier to acquire for people, especially in towns and cities all over Europe. The population was overwhelmingly illiterate, Okay, only a small percentage of people in Western Christendom could read and write all through the Middle Ages. And the main reason for this was that there wasn't much reason to be literate. Uh, you, it was very unlikely that you'd ever really have access to written documents. Okay, You conducted your day-to-day -day business by spoken word and by custom, okay, memorized habits, memorized utterances uh, that didn't need to be written down. And it was very rare that you'd have any chance to get your hands on a book, something that was so expensive and so labor-intensive to produce. So most people didn't have much reason to be literate. Well, once printed books are being sold in marketplaces uh, and in shops in these various towns and cities around Europe, now there's a bit more of a chance that maybe you will get your hands on a written book or at least a written document. Uh, so the incentive to be literate increases somewhat and you start to see more uh, sons and also daughters to a lesser degree of tradesmen, artisans, minor government officials, minor noblemen being educated 
and learning to read and write because there's now more of an incentive and more of appeal to, to do that. So in the late 1400s and especially in the 1500s, the literate population starts to grow noticeably. And as this literate population grows, there is now more of a market for books. And a virtuous cycle begins, which continues for hundreds of years from the 1400s all the way up to the early 1700s. There's a gradual increase in literacy as more people can get access to printed documents that they might be able to read for themselves or read out loud for their family and friends and neighbors. And, uh, and hence, more people want to be literate and more people have more material that they can use as practice to learn to read and write. So the, the printing press, quite in a very unforeseen way, ends up jump-starting this uh, upward cycle of increasing literacy. It also unexpectedly had the effect of helping to standardize language. So you might remember when I was talking about Douglas Murray's book in, uh, in a, you know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned William Caxton printed a book in 1491 with an introduction where he complained about the difficulty and confusion of choosing exactly how to spell words and how to what wording to use when printing a text because the language varies so dramatically just from one county of England to the next, right? Let alone entire countries that might speak related languages. Uh, printing had the effect of forcing printers into that position of deciding what they consider to be the correct or most widely understood form of a language and sticking with it. And so these early printers, whether they consciously intended to or not, began to shape the standardized forms of languages. Okay, uh, the, the Italian language starts to look and sound more and more like Tuscan, particularly Florentine, because that's where a lot of these printers are. The standard English starts to look and sound like William Caxton's English of Westminster and London. Uh, you know, and the, the French starts to look and sound more like that of Paris, okay? So certain forms of languages start to take on a certain prestige and a certain uh, position as, as the standard form. In the 1500s, certain printers begin to create a regular schedule of printing small sheets of relevant information, particularly news, okay, current events that they think certain markets or audiences might like. This begins with so-called uh, avisi, or uh, you know, notifications printed in Venice starting in 1556, which were quasi-official announcements of political events, elections, treaties, battles, that the Venetian government believed citizens of Venice and also leaders in other Italian cities ought to know about. Okay, And, and these avisi begin in 1556. Uh, and they are sold for the price of one small gold coin called a gazzette. Hence, they later came to be called gazettes. 
Okay, so these are sort of the rudiments of what we might today call a newspaper. Later over time, especially as towns and cities grow, certain printers begin to print off their own uh, gazettes or their own sort of news sheets for the general public to be sold at low prices for the general public, usually on a weekly basis. The first sort of regular weekly news sheet that we know of was in Strasbourg in 1605. Several other German news sheets follow in 1609. And these... Uh, these sort of newsletters or early newspapers were not exactly like we might think of today. They tended to be heavily censored and to have some sort of official stamp of approval from the government, right? So they weren't really <clears throat> a private free press like we would think of today. That doesn't start really until much later <clears throat> in Great Britain after censorship laws are relaxed in 1695. And printers find that they have a new a new freedom and a growing market to print news items uh, sort of without without restraint. So this gradual development of a press, a press first in classical books, then increasingly in new books, new compositions and translations, and then in newspapers, uh, grows gradually and accelerates in the 16 and 1700s. In the, by the mid-1700s, you have many frequent uh, newspapers all over Europe, and you have a busy book press uh, carrying new titles, new authors, as well as translations and reprints of classical works. Today, many scholars and also lay scholars, lay historians, often like to speak of the printing press in very glowing terms as a kind of liberatory technology, as sort of blowing the lid off of restraints on knowledge, allowing for new conversation, new ideas. And this is true to some degree. Certainly <clears throat> new ideas uh, and arguments could enter the public realm and reach whole new audiences much more quickly than before. That did happen. For example, Martin Luther his attacks on church doctrine, his great tracts of 1520, were able to spread and cause a stir all over Germany and then all over Europe because he simply wrote his arguments out in plain, accessible German vernacular in short books, and he handed them over to printers who could then suddenly create thousands of copies before the authorities even knew what was going on. So that certainly... Uh, there was a kind of liberatory side to the printing press where people who were literate could get their messages out to new audiences much more quickly uh, than before. And that certainly played a big role in the Reformation. Uh, however, on the other hand, we should remember that alternative ideas, oppositional ideas, could spread very quickly and powerfully in the Middle Ages by word of mouth. Uh, you know, the, word of mouth is, is as efficient uh, as the printing press when you are trying to, uh, you know, cause a stir or organize. But the printing press was useful for more sophisticated arguments and extended debates, like the debates that Luther engaged in with Erasmus, for example. And we also should remember that the printing press also quickly became an instrument of power 
It became an instrument of particular sources of authority. Uh, many of the early printers received royal patronage. Uh, you know, Caxton uh, received patronage from the crown, including Richard III and uh, Henry VII. And it could be used to propagate the preferred ideas uh, and the new policies and proclamations of the crown. That's part of why Caxton was located at Westminster. Uh, and it didn't have all that much freedom and independence, at least for the first couple centuries or so, uh, printers were heavily monitored and they were usually co-opted and used as mouthpieces for certain people and certain institutions. Traditionally, artisans had to be licensed by the crown or by a town or city authority, and printers were no exception. And what they printed was heavily monitored, it was heavily censored, and censorship really reached a new level of sophistication and power in the early modern era. Uh, now that uh, there was this new sort of great uh, weapon on the scene of, of the printing press, not only royal authorities, but also the papacy used printing to spread their, their proclamations, uh, their, their new doctrines, and they closely monitored printed works for their possible uh, orthodoxy or unorthodoxy. And the, the papacy actually, for the first time, created a complete index of prohibited books, right? The, the Index Librorum Prohibitorum uh, in 1559. And for a little over 400 years, from that time up until 1966, the Roman Catholic Church had an official standardized list of forbidden works that uh, printers could be punished for for printing, you know, let alone the, what happened to the authors. Uh, so, the, so the printing press, uh, you know, it in in some ways it did it did facilitate a new level of widespread and open intellectual discussion, but it also uh, helped to consolidate power as well and consolidate control over ideas uh, for the particular institutions that made use of it. Okay, so it, it, it ushered in a new era of debate and uh, flourishing of, of the public sphere and the Republic of Letters and also a new era of censorship. Okay, so concurrently with this printing revolution, there was also a military revolution. And it was in large part because of this military revolution that the crown was able to uh, sort of get a handle on this new technology of printing. Okay, so the early modern era is the monarchical era par excellence. Okay, the the middle in the Middle Ages, as I discussed in, in several lectures, power was very fragmented and divided. There were many different, overlapping and competing institutions, exercising different kinds of authority in medieval society. You could talk about the crown, uh, the nobles, uh, the manorial lords, the church, the different institutions within the church, uh, the local communes, the guilds and confraternities, and so forth. And all of these institutions could have different customary powers over people in 
the medieval West. By contrast, in the modern age, we see the rise of powerful centralized states. Okay, and there are many reasons why this happened, but I believe the most important reason and the first reason is because of changes in warfare that made it possible for people to consolidate power in a few hands in a way that simply wasn't feasible in the Middle Ages. Why did this happen? Well, in the High Middle Ages, I spoke some about the High Middle Ages and about chivalry. The dominant figure on the landscape of the medieval West was the knight on horseback, right? And chivalry simply means the way of the horseman, right? Chevalier is French for the horseman. And the, the warrior, usually a noble, usually a lower level noble, who was trained in the art of warfare on horseback was almost unbeatable. The, it was, you can imagine at a time when there are no firearms and when all sorts of weaponry that we're used to today didn't exist, uh, a knight in armor with stirrups on horseback highly trained and skilled with a handheld weapon, could mow down simply dozens of ordinary peasants on foot, right? And could effectively, given knowledge of the terrain and given a defensible position, could hold off seemingly greater authorities at a distance, like uh, a king or a queen or the Holy Roman Emperor, right? So... So power was very localized, and these trained noble warriors were extremely important. They were the real foundation of power when, uh, when conflicts came to blows, okay, which they sometimes did. This would change gradually after about 1300. So as we go from the High Middle Ages to the Late Middle Ages, this would change. Now, I already talked about this some. I should have mentioned earlier. I already spoke about this a bit in my lecture on the Late Middle Ages. So I'm going to repeat a certain number of points that I already mentioned before in that lecture, but I'm going to try to put them into a bigger context here, uh, looking forward to how we end up with the modern situation. Okay, so certain new developments happened after 1300, that would dramatically challenge the power and primacy of the knight on the battlefield. And that in turn would completely upend this sort of decentralized, localized system of power that people were used to in the medieval world. Okay, so who challenged the primacy of knights on horseback and how? Well, this story begins in many different places. Scotland is significant, Switzerland is significant. But in short, what happened is that groups of people who didn't have a lot of trained knights on horseback had to figure out ways to hold their ground on the battlefield against knights. And very often they had to figure out how to get bands of peasants or to put it uh, in military terms, 
infantry to be able to hold their ground against the much better armed and trained cavalry of the day. And they began to do this first by practicing and experimenting with highly disciplined formations, right? Putting armed infantrymen together into tight blocks that would move together <clears throat> in unison, that could hold their ground, and that could even uh, charge and attack in tight formation in a way that would not be easy for a knight to escape. Okay. And in order to do this, they had to find the right weapons. One of the first was pikes. Okay, so I mentioned pikes before. Pikes are simply a very long battle axe with a long handle with a, an, uh, a, an axe head on one end and usually a, a, a spike pointing forward at the top of the axe head. This is the sort of weapon that if you wanted to, you could plant the lower end down in the ground, hold the pike forward, and use the strength of the ground to hold off a knight charging at you. Okay, so it's it is effective. It's effective not only as an attacking weapon, an axe, but also as a defensive weapon, a sort of almost like a little piece of fortification. And if you're in a tight formation of pikemen, and you all put your plant your pikes and hold them in formation, you create in effect, a kind of spiked defensive wall that can at least serve a little bit to protect you against charging cavalry, which is sometimes what you'd have to do. One of the first places where we know pikemen uh, faced off against cavalry in battle was in Scotland, particularly the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. So, at this time, I won't get deeply into the details. I'll probably go back and do a lecture about Scotland at some other time. But at this time, Scotland was engaged in a war of independence with England. There was a dispute over who would control uh, Scotland and whether there would be a separate independent Scottish throne or if it would be absorbed into the English throne. And in the 1310s, a Scottish nobleman, Robert the Bruce, appointed himself as king of the Scots, he and his army besieged Stirling Castle and had a chance of possibly capturing Stirling Castle from the English garrison. But the English king, uh, Edward, sent a much larger army to relieve the castle and to fight off this English, excuse me, to fight off this Scottish besieging force. So the English had a, a larger force and they had much more knights. They had uh, several hundred knights on horseback compared to probably only about 50 Scottish knights. So by the normal standards of medieval warfare, there was no match here. Ordinarily, one would expect this to be a quick battle in which the larger force with more knights would win and in which they would capture most of their opponents, right? They would manage to get the opposing knights down off their horses, take them prisoner, and the footmen would simply disperse or be captured. That was the normal expected course in medieval warfare. But what happened at Bannockburn is that the English had to cross a river and attack the, the Scots. They had to cross Bannockburn, a, a stream, and attack the Scots. And the Scots simply waited for them and held these 
tight formations of pikemen and effectively surrounded the cavalry uh, and slowly uh, attacked inward uh, until the the English had to give up and retreat, right? So, so by these tight formations and by their, their maneuvers, they were able to uh, basically enclose the English and neutralize their advantage in numbers. So this was a, a very shocking battle. It was very, it was long. It took two days. It was bloody. Uh, and <clears throat> it was very shocking that the large number of cavalry simply was not enough. Uh, to 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 beat this evidently uh, inferior Scottish force. So Bannockburn is one of the late medieval battles that sort of set a precedent and sent a message around Europe that uh, adequately trained and correctly armed infantry on foot could uh, hold their ground and defeat uh, charging cavalry. Uh, the similar events would happen also in Switzerland, and, and you can see Scotland and Switzerland are sort of the two, the two homelands of these new infantry tactics and these new uh, inventive uses of weapons. So the, the particular, uh, the Scottish pike, I should mention, was called the Shiltron. So the, this, this, this Shiltron uh, form of pike uh, later spread out of Scotland. Another technology that had possibly an even more dramatic effect was the longbow. So the, the English possibly, you know, learned this lesson from their defeat at Bannockburn, that, they, uh, that having more and better knights was not enough anymore to necessarily win battles. And they begin to catch up with this idea of recruiting and arming large numbers of commoners and giving them the right arms to undermine and neutralize uh, cavalry. In 1346, uh, England was engaged in another war over the French throne, a part of what we now call the Hundred Years' War, this long repeating dispute over English control of the French throne. And as part of this war, the English levied as many men as they could, you know, rather than simply calling forward their best trained knights, which would have been the normal precedent, instead they, they levy thousands and thousands of men, most of them untrained, and they arm them with longbows, okay? So one of the ways that you could attack at a distance in the Middle Ages was with projectile weapons, uh, bows and arrows, and crossbows, right? So, so, Bows and arrows are fairly easy, quick to use, not hard, that hard to train on them. They only have so much power. Crossbows were much more powerful uh, and had a longer range, but they were heavy and cumbersome. They were difficult and complicated to load. Uh, so you could only fire off a certain number of rounds from, from crossbows. Well, the English during the Hundred Years' War came up with longbows, which are basically just like giant bows and arrows, huge bows and arrows that where the bow could be six feet tall, sometimes, you know, taller than the man holding it. And <clears throat> these longbows were much more powerful than ordinary bows and arrows. They were not as powerful as crossbows, but they were quicker and easier to load. 
you could fire off about twice as many rounds from a longbow as from a crossbow because it was much less complicated and it, it was simpler. So you could recruit some villager or peasant, give them a longbow and fairly quickly have them using it at a high level. So these English longbowmen become the sort of, uh, you know, secret ace in the hole of the English. And at the Battle of Crecy in 1346, again, a smaller English force drew a larger, better armed and uh, larger, better armed French force with more knights into a conflict where the, the French had to charge uphill towards the English forces. And the English placed hundreds of long bowmen behind their front lines so that as these French had to sort of uh, laboriously work their way up the hill, the longbowmen could repeatedly rain arrows down upon them and weaken them. And as men and horses were hit with these longbow arrows, they would fall injured or dead, and that would then create an obstruction, which would make it harder then for the rest of the knights to get up the hill behind them. So... Over time, as, as the French charged and then as the battle engaged, the French were weakened, they were held back, and eventually their numbers were, were decimated until the French had to retreat. So uh, again, another remarkable defeat of a superior army, much like Bannockburn, by using infantry with the right weapons. Another similar battle happens generations later at Agincourt, the, the English inflict another similar defeat on the French. So, you know, they, apparently the French didn't learn their lesson. But again, the English drew the French into a narrow passageway between two dense forests. And although the French army was larger, although it had more cavalry, although they were able to push the English back significantly, the English longbowmen from behind and from the forests on either side rained arrows down. And devastated the French force, which had a huge concentration of highly trained knights. And by the end of the battle, about half of the French nobility had been killed. About half of the French nobility wiped out in this single battle, right? So Agincourt sort of sends the final message that uh, the age of the knight on horseback is ending, right? That this, this incredible... Uh, unchallengeable superiority of the trained horsemen uh, no longer rules the day, but rather that having significant and large armies of infantry adequately trained with the correct weapons can completely change the equation. Okay, so already by the time of Agincourt, people can see that the military arts are rapidly changing, right? And that the age of chivalry is ending, at least as far as the battlefield goes. The age of chivalry is ending. So it's not surprising that people only poured more money and more labor into experimenting with gunpowder. Okay, and gunpowder is, so to speak, the, the, the weapon that finally uh, blows up the whole landscape. Okay, again, you know, pun intended. Okay, gunpowder, like printing, was first invented in China, 
and it was experimented with some in different parts of Asia, but not very extensively. Uh, it was it was used for some construction purposes. There were some you know fireworks, entertainment, but they didn't use it very much for weapons. And probably part of why that's the case is that China was just so by far more powerful than all its neighbors that they didn't feel much need to develop new forms of weaponry. Uh, but Europeans became aware of the existence of gunpowder by the 1200s. We know that medieval scholars like Roger Bacon wrote about uh, gunpowder and the possible uses it could be put to. However, we don't know of any Europeans experimenting with making guns or sort of barrels that could fire projectiles until about 1326. Okay, we have some evidence of, of Europeans trying out primitive guns. Cannons were developed by 1353, so sort of large metal cylinders that could fire uh, a large damaging projectile like uh, a stone or a small boulder. And little by little in the late 1300s, these cannons started to be used very carefully and strategically in sieges, okay? After 1400, some scholars start to systematically collect and analyze the ways that gunpowder can be used. We know, for example, uh, Christine de Pizan, who was an important uh, government secretary and scholar in southern France, wrote the Book of Deeds of Arms and of Chivalry around 1410. And this was, you know, her book is one of the first points where we see a scholar systematically discussing how can gunpowder be used in warfare and what are other uses that could be tried out, okay? And a military race begins around this time, a sort of uh, arms race of how to use gunpowder and how to counter it, how to defend against the use of gunpowder in warfare. Okay, so as I've said before, I think in my lectures on the Middle Ages, Castles were extremely important in the Middle Ages. You know, it's, it's, it's only natural that that's one of the main images people associate with the medieval world is, is stone castles. Because in the age before gunpowder, if you could control a defensible position, that could basically give you effective military and, and political control over the whole surrounding region, right? Uh, all you needed was... Uh, a fortress that could hold a certain number of men-at-arms, uh, that could have its a, a certain supply of water, and you could simply hole up there and wait for your opponents to run out of food and supplies and go home and leave you alone, and you would remain in control of your local space, okay? And hence, the map of medieval Europe is incredibly fragmented. You have all these little principalities, you have all of these autonomous duchies and counties that may have nominally owed their allegiance to some sovereign, to the king of England or, or, or of France or of Castile, but that for all intents and purposes were really self-governing little statelets under the control of local lo warlords, okay? Uh, this changes dramatically around the year 1400 when certain groups, certain particularly rulers, monarchs in Europe, were able to 
put together task forces who understood how to use gunpowder and who could control primitive artillery, right? Early cannons. Because if you had an artillery unit with a certain number of men and a certain number of cannons, then if you got into a conflict with, say, a small neighboring state or a local noble, you could simply wheel your cannons up to their castle, and if they refuse to give in, start bombarding it, right? With, with a power much greater than uh, mechanical weapons like trebuchets or catapults, right? So initially, these cannons were, they were very large and heavy, and they fired stones. And uh, if you could get into a position where you could repeatedly bombard a castle wall over the course of hours or days... Most of your stones might bounce off or shatter, but some of them would make a strong enough impact that they would gradually weaken and cause fissures in that castle wall until eventually it started to crumble. And at some point, the garrison inside would be exposed. Right Now, most high medieval castles tended to be square-based, right? That's the simplest, easiest form to use for a fortress, you know, basically pattern on the ancient Roman fortress. Uh, you'd, it would be rectilinear with maybe square or circular towers at the corners. Uh, if you look at the classic Norman keeps in the castles of England, they tend to be square or, re or rectangular, right? Well, under bombardment by cannon, this uh, th these the flat rectilinear walls of such a castle would slowly weaken, crack, and eventually uh, crumble. So as part of this arms race in the 1400s, or even in the, even in the 1300s, uh, castle builders started to innovate in an attempt to counter the effects of cannon, and they started to build rounded castles, with oval or circular walls. And those rounded walls could absorb and withstand the impact of a fired stone more effectively, sort of like the way an archway can hold up uh, the weight of a heavy building. They were able to deflect the impact of these stones, and so the, the fired stones would simply uh, usually shatter and fall to the ground and uh, the bombardment would not be able to breach the walls. So artillery engineers, in response, uh, escalated the arms race by developing metal cannonballs, right? Forging, rather than using stones, forging balls out of lead or alloys with a lot of lead. These could then be fired even at a rounded wall, and they would not shatter, okay? They, they might bounce off, but most of the impact would go right into uh, the wall and would, again, begin those fissures until gradually the wall could be weakened and destroyed. So fortification engineers responded to this, particularly in Italy. And we know that there were, there were Italian scientists like Leonardo da Vinci involved in this sort of uh, accelerating arms race. Uh, they responded by, instead of building stone castles with walls made of stone blocks, instead building 
earthwork walls, okay? So a fortress, a big wide fortress uh, surrounded by thick packed earthwork walls that might be 10, 20, 30 feet thick. These could withstand any cannon fire, right? There's nothing you can fire at 20 feet of earthwork. Uh, to 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 sap it, you know. Maybe maybe if you fired for years, it might eventually have some effect. But uh, it neutralized cannon. But even then, uh, what these these sort of star shaped fortresses made of earthwork. Even then, you could still lob uh, mortars or grenades, sort of small explosives, over the walls into. The interior of the fortress and try to, uh, you know, destroy or burn down the interior of the fortress. So they were still not totally immune to firearms. But this was your sort of best response of the age to the rise of gunpowder cannonry. And they, this sort of castle design began in Italy in about the 1490s, and in the 15 and 1600s, it spread all over Europe. And this is what you see if you look around, even even at early fortresses in America, like uh, you know the the fortress at Saint Augustine in Florida or Fort McHenry in Baltimore. They are these uh, earthwork fortresses. So the castle that used to be the stronghold of the local potentate became uh, irrelevant. And uh, it, it got to the point, especially in the 1500s, it got to the point where if someone tried to resist uh, royal authority, say a new tax or uh, a levy of soldiers, the royal government could simply send out their artillery units and the occupiers of the castle would just surrender right away as soon as they saw them because there was no point in resisting and simply seeing your castle destroyed. Uh, many castles were destroyed anyway, especially in France and in Scotland. There are many instances of ruined castles or castle foundations where at some point the royal government decided uh, it was too dangerous to let that fortress stand and they simply sent some artillery to blast it to pieces. The effect was political consolidation, but I'll talk about that. I'll talk about that more later. First, cannons were not the only uh, firearms that had this kind of dramatic revolutionary impact on the battlefield. They probably were the most important, but there were also smaller handheld firearms. Okay, early uh, guns like arquebuses, then muskets sort of precursors to what would eventually become rifles. And these also challenged the primacy of knights on horseback, okay? Uh, a musket can hit a knight on horseback just the same as it can hit an infantryman on foot. In fact, uh, riding on horseback makes you an even easier target. It exposes you to gunfire, okay? These early guns, like arquebuses, were not, they were not modern-day rifles. Uh, they were heavy, they were complicated, they often misfired. Uh, the term flash in the pan refers to when the gunpowder uh, in the pan of a musket might explode, but it failed to propel 
the musket ball. So it, it was simply a, a failed firing. Uh, they were very unreliable. But if you got a bunch of them together, if you managed to put together 10, 20, 30 men with these firearms and drilled them to fire at the correct moment in the sort of general direction of a cavalry charge, there was a good chance you were going to hit somebody, right? So they did have an impact, and as the technology improved and they became easier to use, lighter, uh, they became more and more of a threat to cavalry. And you see an arms race as far as firearms and knights on horseback, a similar arms race happens, like with cannons and castles on a smaller scale. Uh, the medieval knight wore chainmail armor. Okay, so if, if if you see now, you know if you go if you go to uh, like medieval times, like the restaurant medieval times, and you see knights dressed up in shining plate armor, that is uh, mistaken. That's anachronistic. The medieval knights, like the ones who went on the Crusades, or or you know fought in the Hundred Years' War, they wore uh, chainmail. They might wear a plate helmet. To protect their heads but the chain mail was flexible it was lighter uh, you could fight in it more effectively and because of its flexibility it could deflect a lot of arrows and it could even resist uh, axes and maces sometimes if it was strong enough so it was really the best armor uh, however a musket ball fired using gunpowder in the at the right angle could pierce chainmail okay so so it, it might it might kill you it might uh, debilitate your arm chainmail was no longer sufficient and that is when plate armor developed okay so it was mainly in the 1500s that you start to see knights on horseback wearing those weird heavy full body plate mail suits of armor Okay, those are those are early modern creations, and the idea of the plate armor is that it can deflect bullets. Okay, so uh, again, a bullet fired right straight on might actually pierce plate armor still, but if there was even a slight angle, then it would deflect and bounce off. So it was a sort of uh, escalation of of this new arms race to try to protect the knight on horseback, but. It was very heavy and cumbersome. Uh, it made you much slower. It, uh, and hard, it was hard to control your body and fight in an agile way. It also was very expensive, right? Not all knights could even afford, afford plate armor, and it made uh, chivalric warfare a lot more expensive. Over time, as, as these uh, various firearms, including both cannon and, and guns, became more common and more sophisticated, battles really changed dramatically, okay? And a good example of this is the Battle of Pavia in Italy in 1525. So in the Battle of Pavia, uh, Spanish forces under the command of Charles V, who was the Habsburg King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, was able to confront a French army challenging his control of Pavia. Uh, the Spanish were able to break the French army into small pieces and defeat them sort of piece by piece 
over the course of, of a day. The Battle of Pavia was not unique, but it was an escalation of several important trends. For one thing, it was an enormous battle. It involved tens of thousands of men of various different sorts, bowmen, swordsmen, musketmen, knights, uh, and hundreds were killed, probably thousands. So this was just not like anything anyone had seen in Italy in centuries. Uh, the idea of thousands of men mobilizing and mass uh, combat and mass casualties, okay? Previously, again, you would have seen limited engagements mainly centered on cavalry, and most of the defeated would have been captured, not killed, okay? Uh, so this this is a it's bigger warfare and it involves firearms. Okay, a lot of people were killed by musket balls from hundreds of yards away by people that they didn't even see. Uh, there were cannon. The Spanish were able to strategically place cannon on high ground to fire down into the French forces, so people could just have their heads knocked off by cannon uh, that they didn't even see coming. This was uh, totally different from the sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat that people normally thought of as warfare in the Middle Ages. Now, that's not to say that at the Battle of Pavia there wasn't also a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat. There was. There were uh, engagements between knights and infantrymen. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the fighting was still done with swords and maces, but it was on a much bigger scale, and it had these new unpredictable factors from... Uh, from firearms. The result was a resounding Spanish victory, which more or less established the Habsburgs as the de facto overlords of Italy. Okay, so this too was an enormous new development, which maybe I'll talk about more in another lecture, but particular people were able to master and exploit the gunpowder technology to enormous advantage. And the Habsburgs are the classic example, okay? The Habsburgs were a minor noble house from Burgundy in sort of east-central France with limited domains in the 1400s. But they were able, through strategic marriage alliances and through mastering and using the gunpowder technology, they were able to rise to become rulers of Austria and Spain and eventually Holy Roman emperors. And with this victory at Pavia, they become undisputably the premier dynasty of Europe. Okay, What had been an obscure noble house rises to become the premier dynasty of Europe with an incredible domain stretching not only all the way across Europe, but all the way across the sea to America as well, because they were rulers of Spain and the Spanish Empire. So the Habsburgs are this, this new player that sort of bursts onto the European scene, and they are the best example of how, of how gunpowder changed the balance of power, where previously you would have had this kind of multiplicity of competing dynasties and houses all over every nook and cranny of Europe. Now you had a few a few major powers, a few major dynasties consolidating power and running roughshod over the smaller uh, principalities that had existed before, right? So Italy, 
was a very fragmented country with many little uh, kingdoms and fiefdoms and republics dotting the Italian peninsula from the Alps to Rome. These small principalities are able to hang on to a sort of formal technical independence, but in effect, Italy becomes a battleground for big superpower armies, the French and the Habsburgs. And with the uh, victory at Pavia, the Habsburgs become effectively the real power, the, the real overlords of Italy. And these small independent states become simply uh, protectorates of this new Habsburg Empire. Later on, uh, in the 1600s, cannon would even become more important in battle. So the cannons that the Spanish used at Pavia were big, heavy cannon that one could position in a certain place and use strategically. Later, rulers would see the benefit of smaller, lighter cannon that could be moved around in the midst of battle uh, and charged forward and repositioned in the same way that you might move bowmen or cavalry. And particularly, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden uh, innovated the use of light cannon. He first used leather cannons, okay, small cannons actually made out of leather that he used in battles in Poland, uh, and then later small light bronze cannons, which became extremely important in Gustavus Adolphus's uh, victories in the Thirty Years' War in Germany, right? So Gustavus Adolphus uh, is an example of, uh, you know, he, he really made Sweden very suddenly into a major power in Europe, where previously it had been a minor peripheral kingdom. Uh, and it's a great example of how the mastery of, of more maneuverable, easier-to-use firearms could suddenly vault rulers and states into great power status, where they previously had been uh, unimportant. And it's really from this point, from the Thirty Years' War onward, that control and mastery of light artillery becomes the sine qua non of major power status, okay? So what are the effects of, of this military revolution on life and politics in Europe? Well, they created a massive offensive advantage, right? The people who were able to learn and use this technology quicker get a tremendous advantage over their rivals. Most of the people who learn about and master this technology first are kings and queens and emperors, right? So uh, they, they might have more knowledge, they have more extensive social networks, they have diplomats and emissaries in other countries, maybe the Middle East, Constantinople, Asia. Uh, so they're able to get this technology and put it to use first. And this gives them an enormous upper hand where now suddenly they can have much more control over taxes, weaponry, uh, information within their realms, right? So real monarchical states become possible in a way that they were practically unheard of in the Middle Ages. And we see the rise of real powerful monarchies in England, in France, in Portugal, in Castile, 
in Sweden, and in several other states around Europe. Pretty quickly, beginning in the 1400s and continuing through the 15 and 1600s. States are consolidated, so these, these sort of odd semi-autonomous appendages, like Brittany uh, in France or Wales in England, become effectively uh, annexed into these new centralized kingdoms. Small independent kingdoms like Navarre uh, in, in northern Spain get uh, overrun and again annexed into larger states. And you end up instead of with this crazy patchwork quilt like we see if we try to map out medieval Europe, instead we get something more like a chessboard. And it was actually at this time, around 1500, that cartographers in Europe for the first time started to produce maps with borders. Okay, that was not done before. Uh, you Medieval maps would show nodes. They would show towns and cities. They might show roads and canals. And they might have some marking, a banner or a color, to show who was the ruler of a given city, right? But they didn't draw borders. They didn't draw lines on the map saying this person controls this tract of land. That started to happen after 1500 because increasingly uh, power and control over territory depended on agreements between major rulers, right? Who has control over uh, a piece of, uh, of, of land, say in Alsace, depends on a negotiated agreement between the King of France and the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, right, or something, or something like that. Uh, it was not a question of, well, who holds a, a castle or who holds a fortified town, right? Power now lies with those who command large armies, trained and equipped, and large uh, artillery, uh, effective artillery forces. Uh Armies have became larger than ever before, right? So it now that castles really didn't matter, right? Castles could be done away with without that much difficulty. The question of who was in control really depended on who could amass a big and well-equipped army. So monarchs begin using their newfound power to raise taxes, to collect them more directly, and to uh, impose drafts and levies and amass large armies, okay? Uh, those who might have a lot of money but not a lot of population, like, say, cities in Italy, for instance, could also hire mercenaries. So uh, the it became more and more lucrative to be a mercenary, and more and more mercenaries were, were hired. Particularly, a lot of states around Europe hired mercenaries from those particular countries that were highly skilled and had a long tradition of mastery of these new infantry uh, tactics like Switzerland. Okay, there are a lot of Swiss mercenaries all over Europe. Uh, they could command high prices, and hence, you know, even still today, the Vatican has the Swiss Guard that originates from hiring these Swiss mercenaries as guards. The kingdom that really led the way in creating their own army, uh, levied from their own population, was France. Okay, France. Uh, created in the 1420s, they first began to create their own large paid armies, okay? So these are not forces gathered through ties of vassalage, right? Rather than levying forces by telling your various nobles, 
you know, raise your men in arms. Rather, they would send out officials and recruiters to raise them directly and pay them wages directly. Uh, local militias, which had existed for a long time, were gathered and consolidated into large legions of thousands of men. They were given Swiss officers to train them in infantry tactics. And many of these legions became permanent fixtures. They were not raised just for wartime, but four of them in particular, four corps, were kept on as permanent standing armies. Okay, this was really unheard of uh, in France or anywhere in medieval Europe. Later in the 1600s, Louis XIV uh, created standardized regimented systems of drilling, uh, uniforms, uh, you know, the, the, the foundation of what we would today see as a modern army. And over the course of Louis XIV's reign, the French army expanded from about 70,000, which was already pretty big, to 420,000 total. Okay, So by about 1700, the French army is more than 2% of the entire population of France. Okay, And an enormous state apparatus, tax collection, rent collection, uh, buying, uh, commissioning of uniforms, food, quartering, barracking, uh, had to be poured into supporting this enormous army. It was not, of course, all in one place. It was stationed in various strategic points all around the kingdom, but it was a kind of mass military uh, mobilization like had not been seen at least since the Roman Empire. This uh, military revolution, as I mentioned before, necessitated a political and administrative revolution, okay? Who is going to find all of these soldiers? Who is going to drill them? Who is going to house them, feed them, clothe them? Who is going to decide how they will be deployed, okay? So with the gunpowder revolution came a kind of political revolution, right? Society, authority in society, and the authority to use force in medieval society was largely inherited and it was held by various different people and families uh, of the of the noble class right so power and status and prestige uh, followed along lines of the noble hierarchy right and different regions would have their own local elites that might have different powers to do things like collect taxes or rents or enforce the law, uh, dispense justice, settle disputes, and so on. With the gunpowder revolution, a lot of these local nobles lose these authorities, right? They're taken away. Uh, new rulers like uh, like John I in Portugal uh, or Richard III in England uh, take into their own hands the power to promulgate the law and to, and to dispense justice in the name of the king, okay? Uh, so if you wanted a share in that power, you needed royal approval and royal patronage, right? So increasingly, people who are literate, uh, who are qualified or interested in exercising power, they gravitate towards the royal courts, right? That's where the real power is now. They start going to Paris, to uh, Westminster, to Madrid, right? And seeking out offices and appointments 
under the authority of the king or 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 the monarch okay the upper class the persona and the habits and the mentality of the upper class shifted okay rather than uh, prestige and status being attached to knighthood right to being a trained noble warrior who could defend your local territory Instead, prestige and status attached to being a courtier, right? A learned person, uh, a worldly person who might speak many languages, who might be knowledgeable about history, geography, mathematics, and who could obtain an appointment in the royal government, right? Who, and so rather than trying to impress your sort of noble peers in your local area in order to gain status, you had to go to the royal court and impress the king, or impress people who had influence over the king, right? And you get this new uh, courtly world and this new personality of the courtier, which I'll, maybe I'll talk about later uh, when I talk about the Renaissance. Standardized salaried bureaucracies were created, right? Okay, systematically organized offices of people who would handle money or handle diplomatic communication or handle military affairs, uh, people who were specifically educated in order to be able to serve in those government offices centering on the royal court. And funding these new armies and governments, there were massive taxes, okay, taxation, especially on the commoners, increased. In many places, taxes tripled or quadrupled, and <clears throat> resources of different institutions, especially the church, were seized. Okay, the church did not generally accept that kings and queens could tax the church. Okay, uh, but kings and queens could come up with justifications or explanations for seizing church properties. Okay, and. This happened in many places all over Europe, but the biggest classic example, of course, is Henry VIII and the dissolutions of the monasteries, right? The, the, this new growing royal court sent out inspectors to find flaws, behavioral flaws, uh, rules being broken in these various monasteries and convents around England. They would then shut them down, seize their land and properties, keep some for the crown, and sell off the rest for funds. Right? So, it, so in this way, these, this sort of growing, uh, you know, ballooning royal apparatus found uh, sources of wealth to, to, uh, to eat, to consume. Okay. Now, with this tremendous political change, what happened to the nobility? Uh, you know, not all of these uh, new royal officials were nobles. Some of them, like Colbert, this very important uh, supreme minister in Louis XIV's government, Colbert, he was a commoner. You know, they, they were not all nobles. And nobles' traditional role and place in society was as the warrior class. They didn't always really do that. And, of course, many of them abused their power and simply lived lives of laziness and luxury. But, in theory at least, their role was as warriors. Well, now the arts, the, the arts of chivalry were obsolete, right? Knighthood did not really matter militarily. And instead, power was being determined by the clashing of great armies, 
right? The raising and then clashing of great armies. So what is the nobility to do? They now basically are, are irrelevant and obsolete. What role are they to play in society? Well, different nobles had to address this dilemma in, in different ways. Uh, many of them pursued and obtained military offices, right? It became very common to serve uh, as a military officer and to command these armies, and that could give you some uh, sense of purpose and importance. Many obtained government offices, but not all of them could do these things, right? Not all of them would have talents in, uh, you know, bookkeeping, reading and writing, diplomacy. Uh, many simply found this new world uh, you know, alien and impossible for them to find a place in. And you see a large vestigial nobility kind of left behind by these changes. In many places all over Europe, there were local nobles who simply lost their sense of pride and importance in the world. Uh, many fell into poverty, okay? And there are economic reasons why that happened uh, as well. The rents that they were able to collect were not sufficient to pay new expenses, and they fell into poverty and became, in terms of, uh, of their lifestyle, indistinguishable from the peasantry. And there was a great deal of, of frustration and anxiety among this sort of vestigial nobility that believed that they could not measure up to the accomplishments and the prestige of their ancestors in this new uh, changing world. And this would become a significant problem, uh, which would play into many further events like, for example, the conquest of the uh, Americas. Uh, but before I get into all of that, I'll just say, uh, if you understand this dilemma of the nobility in the early modern world, sort of left out, left out of time by these dramatic changes, we can understand a lot of what people said and did at that time that might seem strange to us now. Uh, and I think a classic illustration of this dilemma is Don Quixote, right? So, so the first great prose novel, the, fir the first great European prose novel, and the first great psychological novel uh, written by Cervantes in Spain in the early 1600s, right? So in a place and time when these dramatic changes had really worked their way through society and people were trying to kind of cope with the, the aftermath of them in different ways. So the famous opening lines, I'll read this sort of famous opening line of Don Quixote. Uh, in a village of La Mancha, the name of which I do not wish to recall, there lived not long ago one of those gentlemen that keep a lance and old shield on the mantle, a skinny mule, and a greyhound for racing. So there's so much obviously packed into this, this opening line, and there's been a lot of analysis of it over the years. But I'll point out, uh, he's talking about La Mancha, a sort of traditional core region of Spain, which was crucial in the Reconquista, right, in this effort to take back control of Iberia from the Moors in the High Middle Ages. And many people in La Mancha were descendants 
of knights who had this uh, history and this sort of romantic attachment to crusading and the reconquest. And this man, who isn't named in the first line, but he ha- his name is something like Alonso Quijano, but you know, it's, it's, even his name is ambiguous. Uh, he lives in La Mancha, and he's called a gentleman, or the word that Cervantes uses is Hidalgo. And Hidalgo comes from the Spanish Hijad de Algo, son of somebody. And it was a sort of generic term used for a minor nobleman, someone who had inherited some sort of noble title or position, but not necessarily a very important one. So, so this man is a Hidalgo, one of these sort of obscure minor noblemen, and he lives in a kind of obscure place that is no longer really worth noting or marking on the map, you might say. And as Cervantes says, he has these weapons of medieval warfare, the lance and the shield, but they're hung up. They're not doing anything. Uh, He has a horse, so to speak. It's a sort of, it's a kind of skinny old mule. So metaphorically, it's sort of a shadow of the horse that a medieval knight should have had. And he has a, a greyhound for racing, which might be one of his few pastimes. Now, some things that people would have known in Spain at this time, they probably would have seen many people like this man. He was probably a kind of archetypal figure for them. And they would have known that even still in the 1600s, it was illegal for a person with a noble title to work for a living. It was still prohibited. You were considered, if you were noble, you were still considered to be a warrior who should be devoting his life to arms and to preparing to protect the realm. And yet, uh, there was no need for that now. You know, Spain was protected by the royal army and navy. So he's sort of forced into this position of uselessness, right? And as you probably know, if you've heard of the plot of the novel, uh, this man, at some point, after reading, uh, no, you know, romantic novels and tales of chivalry and uh, uh, chivalric romances, he has some sort of psychological break. We don't know whether he's really delusional or if he just chooses to embrace an alternative fantasy life. He begins to believe that he's somehow still living in the Middle Ages and that he is an actual knight-errant sent out on missions to protect the vulnerable and, uh, and, and stand for uh, the innocent against danger and against evil. He kind of uh, rearranges reality to give himself a purpose and a place in the world again that he clearly feels he doesn't have. So over the course of the novel, he goes back and forth over the question of what is real and what is illusory. And while he has taken on this persona of the knight errant, he calls himself Don Quixote of La Mancha. And he insists that the things he sees around him are not actual, they're not real, they're not what they seem to be. Taverns are really castles. They've only taken on the outward appearance of a tavern. Windmills are really monsters. 
They're only disguising themselves as windmills. And he is not really an ordinary man living a sort of dull life in a nowhere village. He is really a knight errant, Don Quixote. So he's asserting a kind of understanding of reality, where things are not what they appear to be to the senses, but rather they are what they are defined to be socially, right? He is a knight because that is who he is by title, by birth, by social role. And he will engage with the reality that fits with that social role. Later on, he, in a sense, snaps out of his delusion and reality flips. And he says, no, uh, the windmills are not really uh, giants. I have been enchanted or tricked into thinking that they were giants, but they are really simply what they appear to be, windmills. The tavern is not a castle. It's just a tavern, right? My old mule is not a noble horse. It's just an old mule. And I am just Alonso Quijano. I am not Don Quixote of La Mancha. So part of what this novel does is it encapsulates a sort of dramatic reversal in thinking that the gunpowder revolution helped to start, where reality was no longer structured and defined by social relationships and by one's place in the larger social body the way that it had been in the Middle Ages. Instead, it was defined by your senses, by what you see and hear, and by your control over objects and that you can perceive with your own senses, tools, weapons, and your own body. Okay, Reality to a medieval is social. To a modern, reality is sensory. Okay, So uh, so that's why I want to end with Don Quixote in the way that I think it, it draws so many of these changes and so much of this evolution together as it had happened up to that time in the 1600s and how we have to, to see that change in order to understand what, if anything, it means to be modern as opposed to medieval. So thank you for listening. I'm surely going to take up a lot of these themes that I mentioned again further in more lectures. And if you want to hear more, uh, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. The link is in the description. Thank you.